Peter Vitaliano, the chief economist for the National Milk Producers Federation, the editor and author of the Dairy Market Report, which is our monthly report done with DMI. I'm giving people the latest in dairy economics. In the spirit of the new year, Peter, could you tell us what was the story on milk prices in 2019 and, and what do you see the big story being in 2020? Thanks, Alan. The big story in 2019 was fairly significant improvement in milk prices. On the average, uh, 2019 prices are going to be about uh, average about $18.60. They're going to peak at the end of, of the last quarter. Uh, the last actual price that we have reported from USDA was just a little under $20 a hundredweight. And it looks like uh, these next, the last two months of the year is going to average about twenty seventy five. The outlook for next year is going to be below that, so that we are actually experiencing the peak of prices according to the futures markets. So right now, this is about as good as it's going to this get. This is going to, as good as it gets, it's going to back off by the current futures uh, a little over a dollar a hundredweight from uh, November and December's average. Put that in perspective for us. Um, what does next year look like, even at the lower prices, compared to what we've experienced for the last five years? Uh, next year is looking like it's going to be about at least uh, average about a dollar, just about a dollar a hundred weight higher than 2019, which is, it would be nice if the prices would, would maintain themselves over $20. But um, as I say, it's better than last year, and it's much better than the last five years. So what does that mean for a dairy farmer? That means that um, the bleeding of the last several years will probably stop to some extent. It's going to depend on individual farmers and their, their uh, individual financial situation. But we're not looking at a full recovery, uh, particularly for s smaller producers that, uh, that basically suffered quite a bit in the last couple of years. So what are some of the trends we're seeing underneath these top-line numbers? Yeah, everybody, milk prices are complicated to a lot of people. They're actually pretty straightforward because <clears throat> they're the prices of, of four main uh, commodities uh, drive milk prices uh, pretty, pretty much completely. That's butter, cheddar cheese, nonfat dry milk, and dry whey. The story of the last five years when prices were really pretty bad was butter. Butter was the only thing that kept the last five years from being a complete disaster. Non cheddar cheese was depressed for a good part of that time because we produced more milk than we basically could, could absorb in the domestic and the world markets, and a lot of that went into cheese. And we saw that uh, with, again, low cheese prices and a a divergence in the traditional um, relationship between block and barrel cheese prices. A lot of the surplus milk went into barrel cheese, and uh, we had an unusual, you know, barrel cheese prices were unusually depressed compared to block cheese prices. The prices of both barrel cheese and block cheese are almost equally weighted in the federal order cheese price. But again, the story of the last several years was too much milk leading to too much cheese, leading to low cheese prices, leading to low milk prices. Nonfat dry milk uh, is driven by international uh, conditions. Our, our domestic prices follow very closely to international skim milk powder prices. And the story there was, again, depressed prices for a good part of the last five years because the, uh, <clears throat> the European Union, following its removal of, of its production quotas several years ago, uh, produced too much milk, and that ended up producing too much, uh, too much skim milk powder. In this country, too much milk produced too much cheese. In Europe, 
too much milk powder. It went into storage, even though the Europeans are traditionally don't like to store extra products. Um, they bought a lot of it, and it overhung the market internationally for years and years. There's always been this sort of rule of thumb that there's this three-year price cycle in dairy, and production overshoots, and demand catches up with supply, and prices get good, and then production goes up again. Two things. One, we're seeing production start to rise again. Second part being, with all the things you're talking about, the European Union, different factors in the market, is this three-year cycle something a farmer can count on anymore? I think the jury's still out on that. Um, it obviously uh, was not working in the last five years, but um, I have not written off the three-year cycle yet. The U.S. dairy industry has gotten linked, synced a lot cl more closely to the world market, and it's gotten a little bit more complicated, but um, if you look back in the past track record, that three-year cycle is so robust that, that it's even though a lot of pundits are saying it's gone, I'm not convinced yet. I think the story going forward, and we saw it emerging last year, cheddar cheese and nonfat dry milk are what are going to be driving it. Um, <clears throat> butter has been very, very robust, staying between you know, 220 and 230 for a long time. Uh, it has weakened recently, and it's slated by the futures to come down almost to $2, uh, this, I think, this month and then slowly head back up. That may be a bit of optimism in the futures. We'll have to see. Butter is scheduled to head back up, but not, not get back above 220. But relatively speaking, that's still a, a, a very strong. Cheddar cheese, um, you talked about the um, you know, milk production coming back. The cheese price is extremely sensitive to the milk production <clears throat> uh, situation. We went from... Uh, basically from the, the fall of 2018 through the summer of 2019 with milk production in the United States staying almost flat. It varied from down about half a percent to up one percent. Say the previous five years, we produced more milk than we could consume. And so in that last year, we finally got milk production under control and prices responded. In September and October, milk production jumped up basically averaging about 1.3% 1, 1 up over a year ago, a big departure from the previous year or so, that totally spooked the markets. Uh, that's when Class three prices started tumbling, uh, the milk price outlook started tumbling, and the cheese price outlook is looking like uh, uh, <clears throat> we're going from, from uh, about 2.17 in November down to 180 by Jan this January, and it's going to stay about that at that level, according to the futures. Now, when November's milk production report came out, it showed it was up only about one about half a percent, and the market breathed a huge sigh of relief. And the the daily cheese prices at the CME started going back up. They'd been tumbling before that, and the the Class Three price outlook had been. It was looking to basically and still is looking to lose almost $3 a hundredweight. So the milk production reports are having a huge influence on cheese prices, and that's having a huge influence on milk prices. So the milk production outlook is probably the most important factor that I put my finger on that's going to determine milk prices next year. And the reason, the reason we're seeing this, uh, you know, a little bit of price relief is bringing production back is that Every year, we have more of the milk is being produced by large farms that can, that can produce milk at lower prices. 
And as soon as a little bit of price relief came, it was very quick to see that response in milk production. But it's going to be almost a month before we get a new milk production report. So it's like we're going to be month to month you know, on tender hooks to see what farmers are producing in terms of milk. You know, what are the implications for prices that you've seen from the latest trade deals the U.S. has been making, specifically the USMCA and the Phase 1 deals with China that just led to all sorts of promises people are talking about? That'll be all good news. The uh, USMCA will restore basically our access to Mexico. Uh, it will give us a little bit of access to Canada, but I don't see it moving the volumes of milk that our, far, our own farmers are capable of producing when they switch from being you know, flat production to up, up one, up, up one and a half percent. Same thing with China. Uh, we're going to regain some of those markets. They've, you know, it looks like they're, they're lowering um, the tariffs on a number of, of U.S. dairy export products to them. China, we'll see how much China actually comes back in terms of being a huge buyer the way they were you know, five years ago. Uh, they're probably looking to diversify their supply. So how much of our exports that we're going to re recover to China? We will recover some. But again, the question is, what is the magnitude of those trade gains on the ground compared to uh, what U.S. dairy farmers are producing on their farms? You were speaking a moment ago about the ability of larger farms to be responsive to price signals in terms of their production. What hope does a small farmer have to succeed in today's marketplace when it's so globalized and so instantly responsive to production numbers? How do they financially plan to have a secure future? That's a very good question. And the, the answer to that is farmers will have to, small producers will have to have a very, very careful control of their costs because milk is a commodity and basically the operations that can produce at the lowest cost are the ones that are going to survive in, <clears throat> in the environment because we basically have a single price compared to, now it's uh, obviously the, pr the, milk pr the price of milk varies geographically across the country, but long term that reflects the cost of producing milk in those regions. And if there's a region that basically is, is able to produce, uh, to lower its costs, that's going to have an effect on prices throughout the whole country. So it's, 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 it's constantly, you know, like the Red Queen says in Alice in Wonderland, you've got to run as fast as you can just to stay in the same place. Every dairy farmer out there is competing with every other dairy farmer, including those that have relatively low costs. Small farmers gained a very significant advantage during the period when feed prices were high because if you raised your own feed, you were, you were basically making money on your feed even if you're feeding it through your dairy cows. And it was tough on the larger operations that tend to purchase their own feed. But uh, feed, uh, high prices of an agricultural commodity above compared to cost cannot sustain itself too long. And guess what? Grain producers expanded their, their production. We had some of, the, uh, uh, some of those demand drivers uh, back off, like very heavy import demand from China and uh, the ethanol mandates. And with grain prices coming back to normal levels, small producers are not making as much on raising their own feed. And those larger operations that purchase their feed are you know, basically getting some relief. So the, basically the pressure is back on the smaller producers. How does the dairy margin coverage program play into viability for smaller producers? Well, that's, it plays very well into that because the, for all practical purposes, the, <clears throat> the dairy margin coverage program 
is ten, tends to base, basically be targeted to operations uh, producing up to up to five million pounds. So the small producers can count on that kind of help, and every one of them is really counseled to invest in that program and don't don't play the futures, don't look at what the futures tend to look at because they're they're not necessarily the best best predictor of what's going to happen. A safety net program can only be a stopgap and a, and, a, and, a, and a help. Good prices compared to, to costs are the only way for producers long-term to, to, uh, to thrive. What does a prosperous U.S. dairy sector in the 2020s look like? A, a prosperous dairy sector is one where consumer demand is continuing to increase domestically and where the international uh, demand for products is also expanding and where the U.S. dairy industry has an ability to compete with the European Union and New Zealand, the other big suppliers out there. The New Zealanders have, they export 90-some percent of their milk. They've, they're good at it. They know how to do it. They, it's an existential issue for them. The Europeans um, basically aren't, do not necessarily have any cost advantages over us. But for years and years, their safety net program was basically subsidizing exports by the private sector. I look at it as the European Union dairy industry got a government-financed education in how to export, and they do it very well. They have large companies that are very, very experienced and very well focused. Exporting is relatively new for the United States, and so we're playing catch-up. We're doing a good job. The U.S. Dairy Export Council is working very hard, and there's some very export-focused companies, but um, it has not been sort of a central issue for us uh, the way it has been for New Zealand and most recently from the European Union. The European Union is only about five years away from its milk production quotas, and it was actually withdrawing from the world markets during that time as the government policy was to get their surplus under control. When they took those off at the behest of some of their you know, more competitive parts of their dairy industry up in the north, they've come back full tilt. And they're focusing on cheese, which is a, a critically important product for us to gain, to increase our exports on. So we're, we're, in a, we're in a serious race with the European Union to export cheese. We have no problems exporting our milk powders, uh, skim milk powder, our dry ingredients, uh, all our different whey products. Um, <clears throat> that's basically a world market. We have no price disadvantage there. And uh, we have large market shares, and basically our product is very competitive. But it's um, moving beyond those dry skim ingredient products toward increased exports of cheese and maybe eventually even butterfat products. That's, that's, where we're, that's where the challenge is. There's a lot of talk about exports. It's very exciting. There's a lot that we can do, and that's, that's a market where, where we can gain new sales, although Unlike the domestic market, it's one where we have to compete with major players. We're still exporting about, or we're still selling about 85% of our production domestically. And so the domestic market, it's easy to overlook it, but it's very, very critical. Uh, the American consumers have been very kind to butter and, and, and basically dairy fat in all, all products as they uh, were finally learned that, um, you know, the previous Dietary advice against consuming animal fats uh, has been seriously rethought. Uh, consumers came back big time. 
selling, basically increasing domestic sales of cheeses and a lot of other dairy products is something that's, that we're going to have to pay attention to because the, the sales, domestic sales have been, have been either declining or somewhat weak in some of the traditional products like uh, fluid milk sales uh, have been declining and will probably continue to. Uh, yogurt was an exciting story for a while, but now it's basically been in a little bit of decline, and it never really got a major share uh, of, of where the domestic milk production was, was sold to, to U.S. consumers. Uh, cheese is the one product that has been growing, and where that, where that maximum capacity is, it's hard to say. But, um, but that's... Basically, domestic sales are continued to, to be the big driver on the demand side. And the question is, uh, will, produce, will milk production continue to outpace, uh, out, outpace you know, that domestic demand? One thing that's not been focused on too much by a lot of analysts has been the fact that, um, that the average solids content, milk solids content of milk has, been, has increased so much that the we're actually growing milk solids production faster than milk production over the last couple of years. That may plateau at some point, but it's, it's still, still pretty much the case. And it's milk solids production that really define the supply that's on the market because that's what gets translated into most dairy products. This is Peter Vitaliano. Thank you so much for taking time to speak with us today. It's always good to have a tutorial of what's going on behind these prices. Uh, Peter is, again, the author and lead editor of the Dairy Market Report. The latest one is available right now on www.nmpf.org. This is this week's Dairy Defined. We'll be back with our written version next week. For the podcast, we'll talk to you in a couple weeks. <laughs>